This podcast is brought to you by Bonus Room Productions and We Own This Town. I am Jason T. Mears Esquire. And I'm Kelly Hoyle-Bullock. And we are San Dimas Today. How's it going, Kelly? Pretty good, JT. How are you doing? God, it's been forever, man. I know. I'm so stoked to be back. Man, so much has happened. So much has happened. We are here. We are season two. We are officially in bogus journey territory for San Dimas today. I can't believe I've done something long enough for there to be a second season. I know. Well, it's like being in a band and making a second album. I've never done it. Congratulations. Uh, (laughs) And to commemorate the second season, I'd like to announce I just broke a chair in the studio. So the back just fell off. (laughs) Um, Pretty excited about that. Hopefully I can pop it back in. But what a show. What an amazing catch for our first episode of season two. One of our favorite pop culture writers agreed to sit down and talk with us. He, back a few years ago when the Bill and Ted uh, box set was released, wrote a really insightful review of the Bill and Ted movies. And we reached out to him, wanted to talk to him about his uh, theories on the movies, why he enjoyed them, why he thinks some critics at the time got it completely wrong. This guy is amazing. I'm sure if you've been on the internet and you've read anything about pop culture, you've read this guy, Noel Murray. He writes for Rolling Stone, LA Times, does some work for Vulture. He's all over the place. He pops up uh, on a ton of different uh, websites. He uh, did a lot of time with the AV Club. Mm-hmm. He's got roots right here uh, from Nashville. Uh, worked with the Nashville scene here. Mm-hmm. I think still contributes occasionally. Yeah. I mean, he pops up in so many places. Uh, he was with The Dissolve, one of my right. favorite all-time websites yeah, yeah. Uh, um, ever. Basically like the all-stars of the AV Club going off to, f- to form their own site. It was, it was glorious. Great. Uh, followed Noel's. Uh, Noel did all the AV Club recaps for Lost, um, which was really the turned me into the monster that I am now. Probably wouldn't be doing this podcast if it wasn't for that. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this guy, such a gentleman, so cool. He even gave me a little bit of parenting advice. Just <laughs> great. So please, um, one, listen to the interview, enjoy it. Very insightful. Two, check out Noel Murray. You can... Uh, if, if you follow him on uh, Twitter, you can uh, see all the different stuff that he's posting, all his different projects. Plus, he's he's just delightful and hilarious. Can't recommend enough. Anyway, here's our interview with Noel Murray. Excellent! <laughs> Noel Murray, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I want to say, first off, uh, huge fans. We were uh, going back, Kelly and I, looking at some of the uh, reviews of the films. There was a bunch that came out for the 25th anniversary, but... Uh, I remember reading from seven years ago now, you had a review of the uh, box set that came out and you reviewed it for the AV Club. I think it was a great review and it really nailed what Kelly and I really enjoy about the film. So um, just wanted to talk to you real quick, like your your basic thoughts on Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, let me take you back just real quickly to uh, when I first saw the film, which I think will be relevant to our conversation Later on, I saw it in college. Uh, I'm not sure how how old you guys are. When when, when did you see it? We, let's see. We we were probably about 11 or 12 years old. Yeah, we're 40 now, so yeah, we <laughs> okay, we, so we, we were we were younger for sure. <laughs> but but you saw it in theaters or on the on video? Oh, in, in theaters. Yeah, I was at Rivergate Eight. I, I I remember it clear as day. Yes, <laughs> for sure. Uh, God bless Rivergate Eight. Yeah, I right. saw it in 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 uh, Athens, Georgia, where I was at uh, college at the University of Georgia, and I saw it in a dollar theater where you know, my friends and I would go to the Dollar Theater like once a week because we didn't have a lot of money, and we didn't really care what we saw. Like We didn't expect to see great stuff. If something was like really heavily hyped, we would actually go and pay 
opening weekend money and go see it at the regular theater. But other stuff, we just went to you know kill time. Um, and so we had we had I had zero expectations for this film. I mean, I knew that it had done well at the box office, but to me, you know, from what I saw of it, it looked like some silly little thing. And I sat there with my friends, and like we kind of looked at each other when it was over, and we were like, "Are we are we wrong, or was that kind of great?" <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? I, mean I, I guess maybe it was something about having uh, such low expectations for it, um, combined with just the obvious joy in that film. Um, I think that's what stands out now more than ever uh, is you know watching Keanu Reeves and watching uh, Alex Winter. Uh, embody these characters and embodying these characters that the, that the screenwriters, um, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, created mainly because they enjoyed being those guys. And then Keanu and Alex carried that forward and they obviously enjoyed being those guys. And so, you know, uh, the, the story itself is silly, sure, uh, but the, the exuberance of those characters and, and the sort of general, you know, low stakes sweetness of the film really impressed me when I was 19, 20 years old, uh, and still does today. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And it, it's actually a barrier to entry these days, <laughs> trying to convince people just based on like the elevator pitch of the movie that it's worthwhile. It, it can be shockingly difficult. So um, one of the things that I, uh, we looked at and we noticed was that when this film was released, there were a lot of kind of negative reviews of it, just folks that saw it and they're like, well, this is stupid. Or, you know, just there were a lot of complaints that the uh, historical figures were just kind of sketches and there there wasn't much depth to it. And I really feel like these reviewers might have been like bringing their own expectations into the film and maybe missing the point of what the, the film was trying to do. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I went back and looked at some of those reviews myself, like the Washington Post and Variety. Um, and, you know, the common refrain from a lot of these critics they seemed to complain a lot that the characters were dumb and they felt offended by that for some reason that, that, that Bill and Ted were kind of not too bright. And I, I'm trying to put myself back in that time. Cause you know, like I said, I was like 19 or 20 years old. So I'm trying to think about what was happening in the culture at that time, that critics would be that concerned that two characters who were you know, the heroes of a movie aimed at younger teens and, and adolescents uh, would be dumb. And I, I honestly can't think w why they were so concerned about it. Unless maybe it was it was around the same time The Simpsons came out, and so maybe there was a general hysteria towards the idea of you know uh, lionizing uh, you know underachievers like the Bart, old Bart Simpson T-shirt. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, that that was a common refrain for some reason that, that these critics were really bothered that, they, that the lead characters were stupid. It, it is a little bit off-putting because there there have been like some wonderful, and it maybe. Maybe they aren't stupid. I, I like to think of them as innocent, almost like they're they're Chauncey Gardner, almost. You know, there's a historical and, and filmic, yeah. you know, uh, precedent for oblivious characters stumbling through life. Not that these guys are necessarily stumbling, but focusing on their intellect as opposed to their enthusiasm, I think, is a, a big mistake. But isn't there something to, like, coming into a film and just appreciating it for what it is and judging it on its merits for what it's trying to do, as opposed to trying to give every film like the, the weight of, you know, some sort of Oscar contender or something. Sure. And I, and I, I genuinely think that most critics try to do that, including these people, you know, I mean, Hal Henson, you know, was a really good critic writing for the Washington post and, uh, you know, the New York times critic was Vincent Canby. I mean, these are not lightweights. Uh, they certainly, you know, I think generally would try to, 
meet a film on its own terms. If, if, a, if an action movie was really exciting, they would say so. If a, if a dopey comedy was really funny, you know, they would say so. I think they just didn't quite know what this was going to be. And, and you know, you try and look at the context of what these kinds of movies were like at the end of the 80s. And I guess the closest parallel would be the Back to the Future films. <laughs> and, of course, those films have a much higher budget. Um, the plotting is much more intricate, you know, you know, especially parts two and three where they kind of weave these things together. I can't remember the timeline. I think part two of Back to the Future would have been out when Bill and Ted came up, but not three. I, I, I didn't prepare that. So I'm I, sorry, think, I, think, I think that's, a, I think that's correct. Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was that weird scenario where they filmed them both at the same time, right? And then released one and then the other. Yeah, right. but the third wasn't out until like 1990 or something, as I recall, because it was suddenly it was part of this wave of Westerns that came out in 1990, like City Slickers and <laughs> yes. Back to the Future 3. It was weird. Right. Um, so yeah, so, so maybe they were looking for Back to the Future. Maybe looking for something that was, uh, you know, more polished and mm-hmm. had, uh, you know, a little bit more of that Robert Zemeckis, uh, Bob Gale cleverness. And I don't, you know, I don't think that, that you know, Ed Solomon and, and Chris Matheson are, are not clever. And certainly Bogus Journey, you know, they, I think they took the success of the first film and kind of used that as a mandate to be a little more, you know, highbrow to a certain extent by bringing in the Bergman uh, right, references. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but, but I think by and large, you know, they're, they're not unclever. They're just not necessarily concerned about making some big, you know, uh, <laughs> big elaborate blockbuster film. They, they're, they're really, they really care about these characters. That's all they really cared about, is kind of finding a way to put these characters on the screen in a way that they could sell it, which they had a hard time doing even that, you know, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, the, uh, the lack of any cynicism in those movies is what has, what's made it so easy to revisit over the years. And it seemed like maybe that that created a pocket for that coming out of that movie. Cause I, I think, you know, it, it always seemed very obvious to us that Wayne's world kind of took that same idea where you had these uncynical characters, placed in a little bit more of a realistic setting, I suppose. Uh, you know, they didn't have them time travel or anything. Uh, I don't know that you would have that existing without Bill and Ted. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And what's funny is that, you know, Wayne's World, of course, got good reviews. And, and maybe mm-hmm. the ground was softened a little bit. Yeah. You know, maybe people then understood what this kind of movie was. And I think also it made a difference that the characters, the actors playing, you know, uh, Wayne and Garth are older. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, a, there, there's an element of kind of putting those characters in quotation marks. Uh, they're they're playing their version of teenagerhood, which is slightly right. skewed and weird and, and sarcastic. Now, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter, of course, were not high school kids when <laughs> when they made Bill and Ted. Right. But they certainly were close enough, and they didn't play those characters like they were commenting on those characters, which is one of the complaints that Vincent Canby made. Uh, Chris Willman for the Los Angeles Times made that complaint in his review that he he, he complained that this was that they were mindless characters in a movie that was not satirizing their mindlessness. And that mattered to him, that the movie was not commenting on the dumbness of these characters, it was just letting them be dumb. Which again, I, I want to reiterate, I don't think they're dumb. I think they're just, you know, kind of happy, happy-go-lucky, uncynical guys. Mm-hmm. But we completely agree. It, it's fascinating that so many people are so were so keyed into that, and it's also just mind-boggling. Like, with the Wayne's World thing, there might have been more credence given to Wayne's World because you had two guys that were established... And Mike Myers and Dana Carvey, even if they'd just been established through Saturday Night Live and being at right. everybody's, and you it, know. it was a very successful sketch that led into the right. Movie, and, right. and they were and they were very su- successful comedians. Whereas, you know, Stephen Herrick at that point he'd done what Ghoulies before that, maybe like mm-hmm. another uh, film before that, but he hadn't done too much. 
Alex Winter had like basically been a glorified extra in the Lost Boys when that came out. You know, Keanu Reeves hadn't done much. So maybe it was just the fact that it was coming out of left field from a lot of people. I mean, George Carlin was the most recognizable face on, you know, in that movie. If you hadn't seen that movie, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's the one that George Carlin did. Right. You know, what was funny for me is that when I saw the film, Keanu Reeves actually was somebody I was interested in seeing because I was a huge fan of River's Edge, ah. um, which came out when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I watched several times. And I, again, I'm not sure about the chronology, but I believe also Parenthood had come out by then. Yeah, yes. you're right. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, so Keanu has a very memorable part, you know, a small part in, in Parenthood, but, you know, has some of the best lines in the film and plays a plays a character kind of not that far removed. I mean, the character he's playing in River's Edge is nothing at all like Bill or Ted. I don't recall which one's which either. <laughs> <laughs> they, not, neither, neither do they, they always say. We, we're not sure which of us is Bill, which one of us is Ted. But anyway, <laughs> is, is he Bill or Ted? Yeah. Uh, he is Ted. He is Ted. Confirmed. Okay. He is Ted. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, so he's in River's Edge, the character he's playing is is pretty far removed from Ted, even though he's also kind of a high school burnout type, but much, much darker, not funny. But the character he's playing in Parenthood is kind of a goofy teenager right. as well and kind of brings real heart to that role. So I certainly had a context to expect the kind of character he would play. Really, I had no context for Keanu Reeves becoming Neo. You know, right. That was that was weird. The yeah. earlier stuff was not that weird for I me. Mean, maybe Johnny Mnemonic was some sort of bridge there, and it's like, oh, he's trying to do another like dark sci-fi thing. Okay, but right, like like, like even Speed. You know, he's kind of a goofy character in Speed, even though right. it's an action movie. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. <laughs> we always talk about the Matrix and that sort of opening scene where. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne's characters giving him directions to evade the guys coming after him at his office and, mm-hmm. uh, and how that idea maybe had been suggested from the, uh, you know, the time travel scene towards right. the end of excellent adventure yeah, in, in the uh, police station. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. So, uh, what are your feelings on the? I, I know you, you've expressed, uh, both in your review and, and speaking with you, uh, your thoughts on bogus journey, like uh, which one of the films do you, like looking back to you, are you more fond of? I, I like the first one. I, um, you know, it was a, a, a the feeling of discovery I had when I watched it. Kind of still carries over when I watch it again. I still think it's funny. I mean, you guys, you, you read my review from uh, whatever anniversary edition that was, uh, the 20th anniversary, I guess it was. Um, anyway, yeah. So I mean, I, I I still think that movie really works. The second film um, I like, uh, but I feel like it's the, the the high concept element of it of let's do the seventh seal. But rather than playing chess with death, we'll play whatever stupid games <laughs> that Bill and Ted. Yeah. Um, it's a funny idea, but I, I, I never found it to be as amusing to watch as it was to think about. Um, but uh, but no, but they're both you know they're both very enjoyable. But 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 uh, I, the first one is the one I love. So off the cuff, what are your initial gut thoughts on this third film coming out? Do you think it, it's going to have some merit to it? Do you think it, it's a little bit too much of a nostalgia thing? Do you have thoughts? Have you considered at all <laughs> Bill and Ted Face the Music and, and its place in the cultural landscape? Well, I'll say this. I'm glad it's going to exist because there's something very sweet to me about the idea that Keanu Reeves would continue to embrace this character when at this point in his career, he's basically you know John Wick uh, mm-hmm. or other characters who are John Wick. You know, he's mm-hmm. pretty much playing, playing that character over and over again now. Um, so the thought that he would, you know, still have that much affection for the character that helped launch him to, you know, success, uh, I find very sweet. So I'm happy that they're working on it. I'm really, really curious to see how you do that with the adult versions of those characters and whether they're going to comment at all on their being older. My, my feeling is that there's probably no way 
the third film is going to be a quote unquote Bill and Ted film. Like the first two films are kind of very similar. I can't imagine the third film is going to be similar. Uh, you know, just it's almost almost impossible to make those characters at the age they are now be similar without it being really weird. So I suspect it will be maybe some sort of, you know, that maybe the commentary on these characters that the critics wanted back in 1989, you know, that's what it'll be, you know, now. I don't know. I mean, I personally, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not one of those fans who clamors for things to come back. Um, I, I like my memories of things the way they were. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't get upset when people make, make them again and change them or whatever. I, I'm not one of those fans either who says, you've destroyed my childhood. You know? Right. Um, I, I'm fine with people who own these properties who want to do something new with them. I'm fine with it, but I don't necessarily need it. Um, and frequently I find it to be a slight letdown beyond, as you say, the nostalgia factor of just seeing these people together again, playing these characters. So I, I like it when things end, <laughs> I, don't, I don't need them to go on and on forever just to satisfy, you know, my, my sense of loss, you know, when they, when they go away. Yeah, sure. Sure. I, I'm a big fan of, things right before they end like I, I i think game of thrones my my fandom for game of thrones and for people at home we're recording this just after the third episode of the last season has gone i think the height of my game of thrones fandom is going to be episode episode two of season eight like right after that i think that's going to be the peak <laughs> of game of thrones for me and if they bring it back in 10 years it'll be okay cool but uh, you know i'll check it out but yeah ooh. exactly i mean like like I all kinds of shows that I loved, you know, that came to an end that I'm I I don't I don't need to see uh, what's happened to the characters from Lost, mm-hmm. you know, twenty years mm-hmm. down the road. I don't need to see what's happening to <laughs> the characters from The Shield, you know, or The Sopranos. Although mm-hmm. they're doing they're doing the Sopranos prequels, so I, I'm I'm intrigued by that. But uh, but yes, I'm I'm happy when things are over. Yes, for sure. Uh, I'm I'm also a big Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. I'm happy that they're reintroducing the character to folks who might not be familiar with her from, you know, what is it now, 20 years or when did that wow. show end? 15 years ago, probably. Um, but yeah, so that's nice that more people are going to get introduced to it. I don't have a lot of need for it in my life, but if it gives my daughter somebody to connect with, then cool. So. Uh, yes, yes, but, yes, but could, but couldn't your daughter connect with the original? <laughs> I, w- I would hope so, but the problem is, like the DVDs I have on the TV, I have it looks pretty terrible. So, <laughs> like convincing my daughter to watch something like that, I think would be a chore. But uh, hopefully, she would be. And this is another question I had, not Bill and Ted related, that I wanted to ask you because you, you sir, are a man who knows the media landscape, and from the reviews I've read, have what I would consider pretty good taste. How do you handle getting your kids interested into the in the film and television that you're into? Because you you have kids that are older than mine. Is there a trick to it, or you just try and throw <laughs> things at the wall, see what sticks, and encourage them? Yeah, the latter. I mean, I mean, I really have not um, made a strong effort at it. Um, I, I had some tricks that I, I did along the way. Like, um, I'm really into comic books. Uh, I, I tried this trick with both my son and my daughter. My son's now 17. My daughter is 14. Uh, it worked with her. It didn't work with him. And the trick was I just, you know, when they were younger on their bookshelf next to all the books that I read to them every night, I would put like just some basic starter intro comics, Peanuts, uh, Archie comics, things like that. Just leave them there and not point them out to them. And then they would find them on their own. And that really worked with her. With him, he didn't care. But but with her, she actually got into comics, I think partly because she would just find these books magically appearing on her shelf and would read them, and I gradually stepped up the level of the comics until later she was reading Bone 
and now she's really into reading reading manga and stuff that I don't even read, but she's really into. Oh, that's awesome. Um, with with yeah, with film and television and and music, it hasn't really been like I, there's certain things that we, my wife and I quote all the time, and so um, we have shown our daughter the things those quotes come from. And that's kind of been a way in. Like if we're constantly quoting Singing in the Rain, eventually we'll show her a scene from Singing in the Rain <laughs> and later show her the entire movie. Like right now we're debating whether to show her, whether to show her Spinal Tap or not because we, <laughs> yeah, she's 14, <laughs> which is, 14 is not too bad for Spinal Tap. Yeah. That's not, I, mean, it's, I think it's about what I saw. You know, it's R-rated, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and, but, but not too bad. Anyway, so, so that's, and then with music, I just kind of constantly, my iPod's on shuffle in my car. So uh, I think they've been exposed to, my weird eclectic taste and they haven't necessarily <laughs> gravitated to anything from it in particular. But I also think that they are, they're not like a lot of kids who would automatically judge something because of the way it sounds or the way it looks, because we have shown them a lot of different kinds of movies, a lot of different kinds of TV shows, played a lot of different kinds of music. And so the formal elements of popular culture, which sometimes push some kids away, like you were just saying with your daughter, mm-hmm. uh, those, those formal elements, I don't think bother them as that much. Now that said, uh, my daughter gets really aggravated when we watch an early season of uh, The Amazing Race <laughs> <laughs> because it's not an HD, but she watches it. She just kind of makes fun of it that it looks so it looks so cruddy. <laughs> right, right. Oh man, uh, yeah, that's uh, incredibly valuable advice. I appreciate that. My daughter right now is just six, so you know she's she's to the point where if I play Yola Tango, she can like dig some of the songs, but. Also, she's asking for, and I like Carly Rae Jepsen, but she will ask for the same Carly Rae Jepsen song on repeat for like 20 times. And say, Honey, <laughs> yeah, but that's, so, but that's okay. I mean, for yeah. me, it's like I, I had, I mean, I, there was stuff my parents liked that I ended up liking as well. My dad's Beatle records, my mom's Steely Dan albums. I mean, those things are things that they listened mm-hmm. to a lot that I ended up loving. But like when, uh, when I was a kid, I was listening to stuff that they wouldn't ever want to listen to. You know what I mean? And yeah. that's fine. So, yeah, so sure. as far as. I want my kids to find their own stuff and kind of have always like I had like when the kids were younger, people would say, you know, what, what kid shows, you know, can you watch with them that are not just going to drive you up a wall? And I would say to people, why are you watching kid shows? With them? <laughs> <laughs> just, that's your time. Stick them in front of whatever crappy show they want to watch. and You go do something else for half an hour. That's what you do. Yeah. Don't worry. Don't worry about their taste at this age. Just, just distract them. From- 30 minutes and get some get some laundry done <laughs> uh, that, that's great that's incredible so <clears throat> being a huge the huge lost fan that i am i know we both jason and i both were but you were there to guide me the entire way through the run of the series and i know time travel was talked about a lot brought up a lot especially when it became more and more part of the show towards the end and with you know with in game having just come out and uh gosh you know it seems like time travel is being used more than ever uh, as far as I can remember right now and almost like every genre, uh, I still kind of go back to, you know, I don't know that the, that type of magic is ever going to completely check out however it's used. Right. you know, we, I think we're all pretty sure that time travel is not a real thing that's ever going to exist. But, mm-hmm. uh, but I always thought that Bill and Ted, the, the way they, they did it in, at least in the first movie, um, it still kind of holds up. I don't know if that, uh, maybe because it was just, the movies were so irreverent and it, they did it in such a fun way. Um, but I, I don't know. I didn't know maybe if you had any thoughts, you know, on, on, on time travel with Bill and Ted as compared to, to how everyone else is using it now. Sure. I mean, it's funny. You mentioned both lost and, and, uh, Endgame, which I also watched over the weekend. Um, you know, all of these things do one of my favorite 
things with time travel, which is the idea that you revisit something you've already seen in an earlier part of the TV show or movie. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like one of my favorite gimmicks with time travel is, you know, uh, aha, now we're going to revisit this moment that happened in lost mm-hmm. or, or this, this scene that happened from the first Avengers film, but from a different perspective as they come in and try to change something, you know, I don't know. And Bill and Ted does that as well. You know, where they, where they, they have to meet themselves at a certain point or, right. you know, um, yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. I mean, time travel is such a weird thing. You know, it can be misused. It can ruin, uh, a storyline <laughs> because if you change what the nature of everything is, um, like I know a lot of people who were big fans of fringe, and kind of checked out of it after the third season because mm-hmm. they reset, you know, the timeline in such a way that, that people felt like everything they had watched for the first three years no longer mattered. Right. Now, now they eventually, you know, changed it back so that it did. But like, you know, they've done that before on the, on, on the flash and, uh, mm-hmm. uh legends of tomorrow a little bit, although they're, they're goofier right. you know, legends of tomorrow, that stuff. The, the uh, star Trek reboots, they, isn't oh, that yes, essentially absolutely. how they, they decided to do the whole series, mm-hmm. <laughs> which That's was right, that, exactly. that was Abrams. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and even and the and the, the TV series as well has done some time travel uh, stuff, mm-hmm. uh, Discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I mean it's a it's it can be a cheat, it can be a narrative cheat. But I think that most of these ones that try to do it well, like I think Endgame does it pretty well, just to present so many rules that you you get the idea that this is not like an unlimited reset button that you basically have or like on the, yeah Endgame had the uh, you know you've got these pin particles you can only use them you know so many times. Of course, then they got more, more. more. <laughs> but that's okay they, they had to do something to do that though there was actual there was a secondary quest mm-hmm. to make that happen so that's fine um, and then lost also had those all you know all kinds of insane rules they had to kind of follow to to make it all work out so as long as you have the rules i think time travel could be good <laughs> yeah and what i what i liked about bill and ted and their time travel i just want to jump in here i feel like they had very simple very clear rules that were easy to follow mm-hmm. you know my trouble with in-game uh, in a I love the movie. I like fan service, the movie, everything I wanted out of that I got, but I felt watching it at 10 o'clock on a Friday night after a long day at work, there are so many rules to what they're doing. And as they were doing things like, does that check out with the rules? It doesn't matter. Just, just moving forward. Right. Like, that seems like that's not whatever. It's cool. Yeah. Just, just keep going. But the simplicity of yeah. Ted, I really appreciate yeah. it. And I think Ed Solomon's all but confirmed that we'll definitely get to see that Circle K scene yet again (laughs) in the third movie. (laughs) Okay, that's good. Good for that, then. Noel, uh, thank you for your time. We really appreciate this. This has been a uh, huge honor. Oh, sure. It was a lot of fun. And we're back. Man, what a great interview that was. Man, how nice of him to take the time to talk to us. I mean, that guy clearly prepared to talk to us about Bill and Ted and it right. did not go unnoticed. I really, really appreciate that. And, uh, took a stab and luckily he, uh, he got into a little bit of time travel discussion there at the end as well. Yeah. So cool. <laughs> Which you and I will be talking more about in our next episode. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We, uh, we've been meaning to get to the rules of time travel and how they apply in different universes <laughs> and uh, spoiler alert. That's what's happening next. <laughs> Speaking of spoiler alerts. Uh, it, it's coming right up. We're like less than a week away. From Bill and Ted Day. June 9th, 2019. It's a Sunday, a Sunday afternoon at Vinyl Tap Nashville. We're going to be hosting a most excellent party along with We Own This Town. 
It's going to be great. We're going to have Bill and Ted inspired art by some incredible local artists. Uh, I'll run down the list of some confirmed artists, not the complete list, mm-hmm. but Carolyn Bowman, Andy Vastag, Tim Cook, Jeff Wilson, and Jeff Bertrand. What we've seen so far has been so cool. Oh, it looks great. Uh, we're going to be giving away some vinyl. We've got a copy of the Excellent Adventure soundtrack and score. So that's going to be two different records you could win. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I don't think Jason and I are eligible. Uh, of course, if we just don't show up at all on Bill and Ted Day, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, enjoy Vinyl Tap. They're going to have some excellent drink specials. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, and let's see. We're going to have movie cards, Bill yeah. and Ted movies cards. You could uh, win a unhonored trip to San Dimas, California. It could happen. Who knows? <laughs> um, it, it's going to be a fun time. I also want to stress this is going to be family friendly. Like yep. you can bring your kids there. You can also get completely hosed and snookered on booze if you want to. It's, you know, kids are allowed. So bring the kids. My lovely kids will be there. You'll get to come be drunk around Jason's kids. Please, please. That way they know that daddy is not so strange and awful. And it's like more of a societal ill than. Um, anyway, <laughs> dudes, we're just so excited um, to be able to, you know, Bill, Bill and Ted Day is an official thing. It is an official thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> People do it all around the country. All and around the world, my friend. I, I would like to say that we're hosting the premier Nashville Bill and Ted Day party. I would say of all the Bill and Ted Day parties that are centered around local artists creating Bill and Ted themed art that takes place in a record shop that also happens to sell beer on a Sunday afternoon. We're second to none. Second to none. Or <laughs> top four. Okay. <laughs> or top <Okay>. four. <laughs> it's going to be great, guys. Please come out. Uh, you know, we'd love to, to meet some of you. We'd love to show off this art. Just talk Bill and Ted. Uh, we can speculate on the future with uh, Bill and Ted face the music. Um, anything. Just we'd love to see you. Please come out. It's going to be a most excellent time. So before we go, we got to thank Scott Bricklin. And Scooby Tunes music. Got to thank Michael Eads and We Own This Town. And we got to be excellent to each other. And we got to party on, dudes. There is only one God, and his name is Death. And there is only one thing we say to Death How's it hanging, Death? <laughs>